0: you have to be counterintuitive almost to lead in today's markets.
1: Hmm.
0: You have to go against your own biology. Because the truth is that our natural evolution is falling behind the pace of our market evolution and technology yep. evolution.
1: Hi there, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee Potters, I have a high octane coffee date for you this week who has a healthy disrespect for authority. I'm talking about Gus Balbonton, who was Chief Technology Officer at Lonely Planet when the rise of the internet happened and Lonely Planet's business model, as they knew it, was coming under extraordinary threat. I want to delve into disruption, innovation, what it takes to change culture, and how you reposition a business in the face of extraordinary change. Here's Gus. Gus, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Kelly. So, I want to take everyone back to the start. You're a Patagonian, born and bred. Yes. Talk to us about growing up in Patagonia. What what don't we know about Patagonia?
0: Um, um, well. You, you've probably seen the mountains of mm-hmm. Patagonia, like most people understand that the Andes are there and there's always kind of snow and huge mountains. But I come from actually the coast of Patagonia. So I come from the ocean, which is super blue and super cold and super windy and there's lots of wild, you know, whales and killer whales and sea lions and so on. Um, and I come from a specific spot where, and people might, might actually know this when I say it, where the killer whales, the orcas, Beach themselves to catch the sea lions out of the sand. Oh wow! Right? And if you've seen a few documentaries of National Geographic, you would have seen this footage of killer whales. You know, these enormous, you know, dolphins because they're actually dolphins. You know, getting out of the water, literally, you know, dragging into the water, grabbing a sea lion, and 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 you know, getting out um, of the sand. And um, it's remarkable because it's the only place in the world that happens, and right. it only happens in this little tiny spot, this little tiny beach, you know, in a few spots, and and that's where I come from. So. I grew up typical regional town life where it's small little town, you know, my dreams were fairly kind of structured on my behalf, you know, by either the community or my family. You know, here's how far you can dream, kind of thing. Oh,
1: so what what were the limits? Because you started with somebody who was always a dreamer. Well,
0: but well, I think I broke through it, but of course, regional town thinking is oh, you are the son of you, therefore you will be this, right? And and that was kind of all, you know, and my parents kind of almost knew what, what house I was going to buy, and I was going to marry into one of these families, and I don't know, you know, it's not formal, but it's it's kind of, you know, the, the, the fabric of small town thinking.
1: So did you always feel a little bit different then? Did you feel yeah, yeah, you yeah. stuck up from the crowd? Yeah. And how hard was it to be different?
0: <laughs> well, I, I think, I didn't feel it was, well, no, sorry, no, no, in hindsight, no, you're right, it was hard. Yes, yes, because I was the, the, the obvious different one, mm-hmm. the, you know, the one that, that will always do slightly different to anybody else. So everybody else plays football, I play tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody was, I don't know, whatever, going out, drinking, I didn't do that, I did something else, you know. So I was always had a slight angle, you know. I think I had a revolutionary streak in me, you know, I always say uh, healthy, <laughs> disrespectful, Authority, which I always teach my kids to have. You know Where did saying?
1: that come from? That is definitely well, I, true in you. I, I, yeah. yeah,
0: I don't know if it's if it's if you're born with it, but I always had this element of me going, I, I, "So what? I don't give a shit." I'll so be... you're always in trouble at school? Yeah, you? yeah, always. I had the literally the worst behaviour at school. Like literally, I, yeah, always in trouble, but not malicious mm-hmm. behaviour, right? So I was never mm-hmm. a bad kid in any way, shape, or form. I would never even cross my mind to harm an animal, a plant, another person, ever. But I'll be the kid that will go uh, to the teacher, why are we doing this class today? And the teacher will go, because it's part of the curriculum, maybe gone, I think it's a dumb idea. And they'll go, whatever. And I'll go, I think we should do a different class. And they'll go, whatever. And then I'll try to convince the kids to go against the teacher. And I'll, be, oh, you know, I'll see you with the ring later. The yeah, day. yeah, I'll be doing things like that all the time. Okay. Like, I started at a kindergarten. At kindergarten, there is a famous story of me, the teacher turns up to, to class at whatever time it was in Kindy. This is Kindy, I was five years old, four years old. Love it already. And this is the story I told to my mum. you know, Leon was his name. Leon turned up to class and there was no one there. And we didn't know where the kids were. And then we started looking for them around the kindergarten and we couldn't find them. And then we walked outside and we found them on the corner and Cass was taking them for a walk. <laughs> so I couldn't I vaguely remember this. You're the Pied Piper. I sat there with all of them and I went, right, that's what we're going to do. He's not here yet. going so so, and go. yeah, so I took him out and I got in trouble for he was doing it, but... So if I went back and, and
1: spoke to you know Gus as a teenager, what, what dreams did you have for what you wanted life to look like? So by then,
0: by teenage years, it was, so by you know, 13, 14, 15, I was either going to become a tennis player, so I was I was aiming towards that, I was very committed to my training, so training a lot, um, but I did, being Argentinian, it's quite common to try to learn another language and I was doing English, since I was about seven years old, my mum sent me to English school, so it was my sister. Um, there was two rules in my house. One was you have to learn to swim and you have to learn English. Okay. There's no... The rest, you can do whatever you want. So I did guitar, I did everything else, but that was the two things I had to do. Interesting. Um, and I grew up in a super humble you know, family. Like, you know, there wasn't much going around. I wasn't poor, but I was at the bottom of the middle class, right? So it was basically just enough. I didn't have a car until I was 15. Um, I, I had my first stereo when I was 14 and a half, you know, like... It was a big deal to get a stereo, for example. Like, wow, my God, we managed to afford one. So you know, the humble beginnings. But by that age, I was a tennis player. or I was going to travel the world, and I knew that already. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be at that point in time. It was sitting for it. Okay, at that point in time, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau, I think I wanted to own a Calypso because I was obsessed with killer whales. Of course, I grew up in this uh, place. Can Yeah. And these things were majestic, and I by the age of age of twelve I think every summer I would spend the summer as a tour guide taking tourists through the national park and explain to them from the reproductive system of a sea lion which I can tell you about if you're interested. <laughs> I love it. that's your
1: to, random trivia. Subject. Uh, had,
0: so I could, yeah, anyway, They live their lives pregnant sea lions anyway, lots of crazy things. And um, yeah the, the you know the dynamics of, of how whale migration takes place and observations on seagulls and why they changed their behavior. And yep. So I was doing all that sort of that stuff. And every now and then, you know, his National Geographic crew would come through my national park because it was so special. Um, and I would get to practice my English with them. And, you know, it was kind of a robust to, to... That's awesome. Yeah, but in hindsight, right? Because when I was there, I always felt that I wanted to get out of there. Because what mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. shit place. I'm so stuck in here. There's nothing to do. I'm in the middle of nowhere. But I want you shit, right? And then I get, I get out and I was going, Oh, my God, you're from Patagonia. Yeah, I grew up there. <gasps> Amazing. i have been going, oh, really? But it was really I never learned to dance tango, for example, which is an Argentinian icon, you know, yeah. until I left Argentina. Isn't that funny? And then when I left Argentina, they go, oh, Argentina, you dance tango. No. Oh, my God, embarrassing. Shit, I better learn to dance tango. I <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> Play polo. You know, Argentina is renowned for... Oh, yeah, poses, right? absolutely. Never did that. So I left Argentina. People go, "And oh, do you play polo? No. Oh, my God. What sort of Argentinian are you? But I went back and I played bull for a whole year. So I can actually say that I can jump on a bull horse, I can, you know. You know what you're doing. And I can actually failing, like I one year. But I can at least say, when people them, do you say to me to play, I said not quiet, but I have tried it. And it's great fun.
1: So I know the mm. wonderful story of how you met your now wife. Was the tango involved in that
0: tale at all? Uh, at that point in time, see, when I came for the first time, I didn't know how to dance tango, but I knew how to dance. Argentinians, I think, we kind of have Ninety-nine percent of them will have to dance. You know, you kind of born yep. with the beat and the you know and the cumbia and the and whatever all the Latin American yep. flavors. So we very we can you know move our hips.
1: And can you tell us um, tell us the story of how you met your wife? Because you you knew straight
0: away this was this was the woman. Uh, yeah, school um, actually uh, school party. I was seventeen. I see across. I still remember everything. See across the room this gorgeous girl. Um, I fell head over heels immediately. Um, I went up to her and had a bit of a chat. The next day, I found out that she was also at, at my school. Um, um, we eventually crossed paths again, and two weeks after I met her, I asked her to get married with me. This is the 17th. This, and she said no. And I was in shock. <laughs> I was so confident. This is the crazy thing about teenage, right? In my mind, I'm going, done deal. I've got it, right? I'm I've got this. Watch. <laughs> Do you want to get married with me? How are you? I know, I know. And she said no. And the next words that came out of my mouth was, "You're trying to get a visa to Australia," and I was like, I, I, "You know, you can imagine, seventeen. I didn't even think about like, that. It wasn't even in my head. How on earth could we possibly live together? I was just, oh my God, he's he's a girl, right?" Uh, and I went, "What? No. What are you talking about? I just really think you're gorgeous." Just kind of story short, I ended up getting rid of the boyfriend. It was a non, you know, I always say it was a non-competition. <laughs> because and this without the respect of any of the audience listening to the podcast, but I always say that, you know, Anglo-Saxons cannot compete with Latin America. <laughs> so, of course, you know, it was a non competition. Basically, I turned up and the guy put his head and I went, oh, okay, okay. You can see the defeat, wave the, the white various, flag. You know, dance, kick, curly hair, okay, he can dance, I can't, yeah. nah, not good. <laughs> I can't compete with this. So, um. So yeah, but and then, of course, I always say that it took me longer to get the visa than that did Maria. marry her. so that was right. So then it took me like three or four years, and eventually I did get the visa. And I think three months after I got my residency in Australia, we actually got married. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah. And, and how many married, years married now? Three kids. Of course, put me on the spot. Only, I don't know, like 14 or 15. And three beautiful kids. 15 years, I think. Yeah, three kids. Unreal.
1: Yeah. And tell us the story. I mean, it sounds like from a very early age that you were interested in travel and the world and nature. Um how did you go from patagonia to ending up at lonely planets doorstep
0: yeah and that was like one of those moments you know sometimes people say you know sometimes i say oh you know i'm very lucky and people tend to say well you know you make your own luck and this oh, like, argument's yeah. for both sides right it's true you need to be there when it happens otherwise and i always say to my kids make sure you always have your hand up mm. because lucky people have the hand up the, you know the typical pick me and i was born with my hand up literally He's like, who wants to me? It was like, we haven't even said what it is. Doesn't matter. I'll do it. I <laughs> didn't care what it was. Like I was always me, me, me pick me, pick me you know, for everything. And I said to my kids the same thing: always have your hand up, always have your hand up. It doesn't matter what it is. Just do it. Just try everything. Yeah, anything, volunteer, your offer, do. Why not? Yeah, it's the best way to explore the world is by just having your hand up. So, but I always say that despite the fact that that was if you will bring luck, I always say you can never underestimate how lucky I was to be born in the family I was born to, you know, and in the place I was born, and so on. Um, we have no part in that. We're born lucky. I always say to people in Australia, oh, gosh, don't underestimate how lucky you are just to be born here. Mm. It's lucky. Like you had no part in you. you didn't do anything for that, by the way. You were just born. That's here. a free kick. So free yeah. kick. You started in a good place. Go now. Don't just. And you've got a responsibility because of that, right? Because of that. So I make sure, people need to understand that, right? So Lonely Planet, there was a bit of a lucky thing as well in there. Of course, I spent, in between all those crazy things, and in between starting a business selling cakes, and starting an advertising agency, and doing lots of different things. Always entrepreneurial. Going to uni, and going out of uni, and all this stuff. um, I went traveling, and I went hitchhiking, and I became a... I should write a book Always, I should write a book about how to hitchhike, because it's, it's an art form. I've also hitchhiked. Oh, have you? Yeah. We should she not We should stuff? stop
1: hitchhiking now. Oh my God. Yeah.
0: So, you know, one of the things, because I used to hitchhike with a big backpack, of course, and I had this trick that I used to always put the backpack about 10 meters behind me, mm-hmm. so that as the cars approached me, they saw me in perspective being bigger, much bigger <laughs> than my bag, so my bag looks small. And of course, when they stopped to get in and I would drag my bag, they saw the bag and it was like, holy shit, how am I going to get this bag in my car? And it was like, by then they stopped, so they couldn't get away from me, so I would jump it. It's a very common strategy. And it was really clever, right? Um, anyway, so I went and did a little hitchhiking around Latin America. Uh, my trick was, of course, that I hitchhiked with no money. Yeah. So I took no money in my pockets, no credit card, no nothing, and I just took off and I spent the next few years doing that. So you spent and, years with no money in your pocket? just Nothing, zero. The, the goodness con- of humanity. The, the kindness of strangers. Wow. Fascinating. The word help goes a long, incredible?
1: long, long, long way. Mm. That must have been really encouraging. Too. Yeah,
0: really amazing. I, mean, I mean, and despite the fact that sometimes you get that and you, you kind of lose hope in humanity, often I need to cast my mind back to those moments when you go on... The kindness of strangers. It was amazing. It, did, like, it just takes you everywhere. I it's love insane, that. It's insane, right? It's mm. insane. And some places that I was going through were at that point in time slightly dangerous, borders that were not very safe. And... It's really interesting. It's if you have no agenda, there no one has any agenda. You know, like, can you help me? Out? I've had people helping me that I knew that perhaps weren't the nicest people, perhaps. So I mean, they were on a quest that was was legitimate, but they perhaps they were going about it in a fairly brutal way. Mm-hmm. But those people helped out as well because they had no issue with me, and I was just there getting from A to B, and they would help me out. You know, people that you go, wow, I'd be scared of you in any other circumstance, but you're not, and I'm not threat to you, and you're not threat to me, so. Let's work but out how we help each were other. Just, were just as kind as anybody else. Quite remarkable. Um, so I think the lot of my story came because because of that troubled time. My mother-in-law sees an ad on the newspaper saying they're looking for, at that point there was a designer, a cartographer, and of course I did one year of industrial design at uni, my dad is an architect, my sister is an architect.
1: Oh, right. I, I grew cool. up
0: amongst pens and I... Lots I, of paper? I can draw. <laughs> okay, I cool. Can draw. I can draw. So Another hidden talent. I didn't know that so about you. I can draw. And that was uh, that was a uh, uh, something that got me through and applied for the job. Of course, I at that age, and with not a lot of skill, I perhaps had to exaggerate my CV a little bit. I was going to
1: say, one <laughs> year of cartography. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, have you done maps? Oh, oh, got a library. Hundreds.
0: Hundreds of hand-drawn maps in my life. <laughs> I Take it till you make it. Anyway, so I, you know, I did that. But what got me through was at that point in time, um, Lonely Planet would favour people that had travel experience, and mm. I had a a lot of that. A lot of that, and I had a really quirky, you know, it was a really solid hitchhiker. Mm. So uh, that I think this what got me the job, and then I spent yeah, a number of years that for me was a dream. You can imagine, uh, as a traveller, working for Lonely Planet was like a I still remember seeing my name at lonelyplanet.com.au, and I still could not believe it. Mm. I, I think it lasted years. Of every time I saw it, just I, got being a, I got a buzz. You know, I was like, oh, "My God, Lonely Planet address, How cool is that?" Like, it was just magical for me.
1: And tell me, like you arrived at such an interesting, or you saw out such an interesting period in that organisation, because you arrived right as the world started to flip on its head, right? Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, we've got the internet, we've got people that are starting to think about how they source travel and travel yeah. differently. You were there during a pretty massive transformation. Yeah, yeah. Talk us through yeah. that.
0: I, was really, and I would say I was privileged to get to be part of it and watch it and observe it. And of course, I always say, a lot of my understanding of what happened then, and what's still happening today, but what happened then comes in hindsight right when you're in it you, you it's doing the best you know how sometimes right? you get to observe and realize that sometimes you're just kind of doing what you're doing because everybody else is doing it too so what's it wasn't i mean the, the wonderful thing is that lonely planet wasn't just the only one it was amazing all of media yeah you know, call it newspapers magazines tv books whatever you know music all of that sector that communicated in some way with humans in various methods, the entire thing was, you know, flipped on its head by the internet, if you will.
1: First wave of digitization, exactly. wasn't it?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I would say there was no blueprint. It's nice no. if you could go through the, you know, liter- you know literature of, of business management and go, oh, this happened before. Right? I mean, the next comparable thing, and not in essence, but in, but in shape or scale was the industrial revolution. That's the mm-hmm. only thing we can call back quite as dramatic as mm-hmm. this next thing, right? So it was, uh, yeah, everyone was, you know, scrambling around trying to figure out what to do, basically. And we would look at each other and try to see, well, they do this and, you know. So a lot of the industries that are facing these things now have the benefit of standing on the shoulders of those first companies and for better and for worse, right? For the ones that went That's under right. and the ones that succeeded. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, so I was part of, a, of an amazing cohort of human beings. I mean, Lonely Planet had by that point in time put together a, a wonderful group of humans, which were all natural born travellers as well. So it was stunning. Like I still remember, taking up to Lonely Planet my first day and having a chat to people, thinking that I was. You know, young, of course, and I was slightly special because I spoke a few languages and I, you know, and I hitchhiked all over the world and blah, 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 blah. And these people go, Oh, yeah, just came back last week from running a marathon in Mount Everest. It was pretty cool, right? And this other person was speak seven languages. And this other person, and it was like, so diverse. Oh my God, wow. I thought I was, no, you guys. So all of a sudden, they became my idols. These people around me that were from the planet were like, you know, insanely amazing to me. And I didn't know I could find people that were. Just as crazy and just as adventurous yeah. as I thought I was, but all of a sudden they were even more than me. So all of a sudden I had targets, you know, to, to even aim for. Um, now I, you know, I was super privileged and super lucky to have the opportunity to be in such a wonderful brand, which still run to them I and mean, I don't work for them anymore, but for a number of years now, but um,
1: What did you learn about innovation during that period? Amazing. Being on the, the ground floor of sort of, you know, taking Lonely Planet, which at the time was number one travel book in the world yeah, and, and yeah. was hard copy and people who wanted to travel, and this might be interesting for some of our listeners who've yeah. never known that world. Yeah, that's exactly You know, right. when you wanted to go travelling, someone would buy you or you'd go buy yourself the Lonely Planet book on France or so would have yeah. all the cool places well, to go Bible, and like,
0: restaurants and whatever. It was called the Bible.
1: It was. It called it the
0: travel Bible. Bible. It was like, even if you're religious non-religious, it might have been given that kind of level of credit. That's rare air. Pretty impressive, right? Totally. You get called, oh, this is a travel Bible. Wow. That's impressive. Um, So, look, no, I mean, I guess the the basic things around innovation is that you have to, I mean, I've learned when we're scattering and we're scared of disruption because it hits us, we tend to very quickly try to corner innovation into a particular place, thinking that it's the responsibility of a group or some or a particular department. Uh, I've learned that very rarely those kind of innovation strategies work. Very hard to separate innovation from the core of a business. Particularly when disruption is affecting the core Everyone, of a business, right? right. Yeah. Um, I've, I've learned that innovation is its the aggregation. I've learned that business is the aggregation of humans, right? And mm-hmm. we often tend to forget this. And, and why is that important? Because innovation actually doesn't start in you know—in a poster that you put on a wall and you say, let's be more innovative. And then <laughs> innovation takes place, right? Innovation actually starts with each one of us. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it actually is something that you must master yourself before the sum of you who forms a business can master, right? Of innovation gets, especially gets, in the last few years, you know, it, it became a fluffy kind of mm-hmm. concept that became fairly abstract, so I tend to help people pin it down by, by saying that innovation is action, right? It, it, you, you just act upon a problem that is unresolved mm-hmm. to solve it, right? mm-hmm. That's all you do. And You literally are solving problems and you're acting, you're doing that, right? Yeah. And I always say innovation is a spectrum. So of course, on one end of solving problems, there might be super minimal, really basic problems that often in business call continuous improvement, right? Mm-hmm. The so low hanging fruit. Small, stuff. tiny things yeah. that you might improve a little bit of a process, you change that. I say to people, there's innovation too. There is nothing wrong with that, right? That is important to keep doing all the time. On the other end of the spectrum, of course, is perhaps innovation that solves climate change for humankind. Mm. Holy shit, that's big. All right? That's going to be a big piece and it's going to take lots of... But I say all of it is innovation. Right? All of it is action. All of it is acting upon unsolved problems to solve them. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes people say, well, how do you measure? And I go, well, as soon as you are measuring solving problems, then you kind of are measuring innovation. But I equally, I always say careful because innovation requires an enormous amount of common sense. Right? And when you start measuring things, you very quickly rather against common sense. Mm. Make sure that things take away common sense. KPIs kill common sense because you actually follow the KPI rather than
1: yep your common sense. I, th- I often say the same thing about GPSs. I think people would follow a GPS off a cliff if it told them to go there. Yeah. KPIs are a bit that way too. It's like, oh, well, that's what the performance target says. Yeah, so it, it says that, much. so I'll do that.
0: Yeah, but I think, and that's the an issue. If you were to, re- I always say to people, oh, you want to have KPIs, fantastic. Review them every day. Well, that's a bit over the top. Well, the issue is that you do it only once a year, let's say. Yeah. Market moving went too quick. You can't put a key performance indicator that you don't review every single day. Every single day, conditions change. Does it still matter? Every yep. single day. And if you were prepared to pay the tax of reviewing a KPI every single day, sure have them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, whew, be careful how many you have because it's a fair tax to pay. Totally. To every single day. So I said to people, have one or two or three mm. indicators that will give you a sense of if you but not too many, don't over-KPI yourself because... I like. And also review them regularly, all the time, and make sure it doesn't kill your common sense. Always ask the question, does this make sense? So lots so of common sense, um, make it simple, you know, make sure you don't, make sure you make everyone accountable for it. Um, be patient, innovation is not something, you know, and I always talk about the challenges of our own brain, right? That one of things that plays against running businesses today is our own biology.
1: Mm-hmm. You know?
0: We've developed this brain that we carry on our our heads. Sometimes it
1: gets in our way, doesn't it? Well, I
0: think most of the time, unfortunately, (laughs) it's a real challenge. You know, it's it's we developed it over 2.5 million years primarily to hunt together, Mm -hmm. not to run businesses in today's yeah fight or flight.
1: Sometimes isn't so handy
0: (laughs) in a business context. Not at all. And the way we manage risk and the way we manage trust is very much on shit. Should I eat this or not? If I eat it, I might die. Wait. Should I trust this person? Yes, no. Well, up until 10,000 years me? ago, yep. if there was someone that I didn't know, I wouldn't trust them, so I would kill them. So, of course, it's very difficult to build the, so I always say, you know, one of my big, uh, I'm writing a book at the moment, so one of my big sections of the book is, it's around, you know, counterintuitive leadership. You have to be counterintuitive almost to leading today's markets. Hmm. You have to go against your own biology, because the truth is that our natural evolution is falling behind the base of our market evolution and technology evolution so because it's falling behind our own biology is letting us down we actually you know the only place we can rely on is our logic and our logic is you know highly hampered because artificial intelligence is way better at that so we're, we're left with this limbic system and reptilian system which are antiquated and at odds you know we can't help ourselves I mean that's typical you know people think that they vote with their logic they don't we vote entirely, it's a Olympic system decision.
1: I mean, so building on that, you mentioned before that you know until you become a master of innovation yourself, you can't do it in collaboration with others. What part of going on that journey of fighting against your own biology did you find the hardest as a leader?
0: What was well, the biggest growth for you? Well, for me in particular, I think I was lucky enough, and I'm not saying that you need to be born with this. You, you know, you, I, I was lucky enough to be born with that healthy respect of, of, of regulation and structure and authority. <laughs> yep. And you kind of need a bit of that to be innovative. You mm-hmm. need to keep asking, why are we doing this? For? Yeah. You know? or, well, the law says, it. screw the law, hang on a second, does it make sense, kind of thing, right? And I've always had that streak in me. And I think that's important. But the bit that I've learned personally that was important was somehow as a young person, you expect everybody else around you to kind of think like you or, or be like you, or why can't they believe me or understand me, or, And I think that's a bit that, I'm, that it took me a little while to kind of finally sink in, you know, the concepts of, of the importance of diversity, the understanding that your own truth is always incomplete. I say this to my kids, never, ever forget your perception, it's down to your senses. Your senses are faulty. Your eyes are faulty, your ears are faulty, your taste buds are faulty, they're kind of okay. They do a pretty good at reality. But it's always an incomplete reality. It's yours. You always need lots of others to complete a full picture of reality. And even then, you know, still have elements of your bias and various bits. So never believe yourself too much, right? Just a little bit, but not too much. And I think I struggled with a lot of that. I always felt that everybody else already got it. Everyone believed me. Everyone thought that I was right. Of course, I was right. And, and I kept driving and hitting the edges of the structures that were in place, of course, and the respect that I had to have for the pace and the diversity of others, right? So I think that was my big lesson, is that once I've learned how to master that diplomacy and political game and and accepting that diversity was actually important to my own innovation even, mm-hmm. and would make it richer, I started realizing that together you can be far more than on your own, right? And that's when the power of the innovation that i was driving got exponentially larger yeah that's exciting and it took me quite a few years and partly it's around biology Mm -hmm. i was young i got this i'm super clever clearly so i'm yes if everyone does what i say we should be okay and who did, I mean, I'm
1: interested, like obviously you've been great at learning through experience and through doing and you have that not natural entrepreneurial bent to you. What role did mentors play? What role did kind of, you know, mentioned number of your colleagues inspired you. What were some of the key lessons that you were taught by others that you've really put to use in your own life?
0: Yeah, I, lots. And I've always had, I don't, think, I don't think I've consciously thought about this, but I was naturally always drawn to people I admire and I would, Naturally mimic them. I was very, I'm still very good at mimicking. Like I can mimic very quickly people's gestures. I'm very good at sport actually because I can mimic. I'm playing drums at the moment. Most of my drumming comes from mimicking the my go on teacher drumming. No, my teacher drums. I go do it. He doesn't go. Oh yeah, <laughs> mimic. So I think there's a lot of mimicry that I was naturally, you know. Yeah, cool. Well I think humans are born with mimicry because we all do it naturally. But um, I was very in tune with my mimicry. I could mimic really quickly. And I think I just, I was lucky to pick the right the right leaders to mimic, right? So, Lonely Planet, at, during the time, had uh, some wonderful, in fact, a lot of, the majority of my leaders that I've mimicked have been women. From the moment I was born, my sister was one of my biggest idols, Aww. and my mum. I love that. So, my dad taught me a lot of the logic and a lot of the, you know, but actually, I mimicked the behaviours of my sister and my mum. What was it about them really that led you to? I don't know. I always felt there was an element of stoicism. I don't know. There was something about my two women role models living in a macho society that I've always loved. They were kind of the underdogs. Yeah. Always, right? Because society yeah, sure. was against them. In Argentina, gosh, 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Oh, still yeah. Still a bit. You can imagine. They... And then they grow up. My mum, you know, born in the 40s. But there was a level of, of, of irreverence to that that my mum had, and whatever that I always felt rad. Right. I, and the dog is cool. Like, yeah. Let's, yeah, fight the system. I love that. You know. So there was something about it that I naturally was drawn to it cool. rather than the easier, which was just it's easy to be a male in a male society. Mm. Way way harder, but in my mind, kind of cooler to go. Let, let's fight this. Let's you know, got up, helmet on. Let's go. <laughs> we're on. We're fine, right? Um, awesome. So there was a bit of that, and I think in business it was the same. When I saw leaders coming into business, mm-hmm. you could clearly see that there were there were always, there was always a system mm-hmm. that they had to fight before they could even go and get the job done. Totally.
1: Oh, uh, and uh, building on that, I know you are such a passionate dad. You have so much love for your kids, and it's one of my favourite topics that you touch on. And I know that you're really intentional about the way that you raise them. What, what are some of the key bits of advice that come, that you talk about most often in your household?
0: Well, like undoing what school teaches them every single day. You're pretty day. big on that one. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I would be terrified as, the, they, as the teacher at your parent-teacher interview, you Dubai.
0: What did you say? No, no, don't believe that. No, that's wrong. No, don't do that. <laughs> um, oh, look, I've got lots of uh, various different tricks with them. I. I am very big on learning through experience, so my wife and I both have, you know, a very obvious way of bringing them up through experiences, right? So we prioritize significantly traveling and and traveling locally and internationally and making sure that from camping to luxury, it doesn't matter, but we try to make sure they experience most of the world, you know, like my son and I, he's 12, we're watching all the uh, drug Related uh, shows on Netflix at the moment, from you know Pablo Escobar to uh, Chapo Guzman to everything we can, because I'm trying to get him to understand the entire system, Mm -hmm. not just the fact that he may or may not see drugs at school. Like that's just a tiny little, tiny, tiny little tip of the iceberg of a really large, complex thing. Right, so. And, and I take them all the way back 100 years. I say, because back in the day, it wasn't even illegal. Did you know that? You could go to the pharmacy and get cocaine. Mm-hmm. And he's like, really? Yeah. Let me tell you how. And, so I explain. And, and so through experiencing, right? Through making sure that they actually get to see it and touch it and play and learn and you know be exposed to it. But you know, I, for example, I, I say to my kids, I'm not, to be honest, I said to my kids, I'm not really all that interested in the subjects you learn at school. That they're there or thereabouts. Perhaps some basic... Elements of them would be good grounding if I was to keep some someone for the future. But the truth is, in doing I don't even know what bits of what you're learning right now are going to be used. right beyond you engaging with other humans. So I say to them, the bit that I'm really conscious about that is really important is the playground. So I say to them, watch the playground, hack the playground, master the playground of a school, and you have master life. Because I say to them, life is very similar to a playground. Mm-hmm. Right? Adult life. It's like a playground. My kids are always fascinated. They go, "What well, do you play games? And I go, yes, exactly like you. Well, like Truth or Dare? Yes. The board meeting that we had the other day was exactly Truth or Dare. Identical game. Well, like it is just dare to kiss each other. Not kiss, but <laughs> yes, almost. Like we dare to, you know. And they go, oh my God. And do you play Chinese Whispers? Yes, exactly the There's same There's a lot of game. that. A lot of it, and they go, what exactly? yes, and then consequences because of that game take place. Oh my God. So I give them, for example, I always challenge my kids to um, to do playground games. So you know, my son, of course, loves sport, he's into all his footy and you know, all his stuff, and he, so he, you know, and I che- you know, dare him to go and play, I don't know, moms and dads with, you know, when he, this was, when he was a bit younger, he was in like he three or whatever it was. And he was playing, you know, soccer and I kept saying to him, Come play mums and dads with the other kids. Oh dad, I'm mums and dads, whatever. And go and do mums and dads for you know for a week. I'll dare you to go and get to meet new people and do it a different way. And I don't know anyone there, how am I gonna do it? I don't like it. But eventually when they did manage to do it, they'll come home and they'll go, Dad, I play mums and dads today And he's like, weird? These new kids, they're really weird, but I loved it and he was you know and then all of a sudden he had and you network and, and you know, mm-hmm. the political game got improved. And and it's a little tiny essence of that, but it's important, right? My daughter would say that I wanted to play, she of course loves ballet and this and that and moms and that. And I said to her, well, I want you to play footy. And she goes, Dad, I'll play footy. Play footy, go, you know, try. And she goes, but I'm not good at it. Who cares if you're good or not good at it? Just go and play footy. And she had to network her way into a footy game at lunchtime, because of course, you know. She like, deal. Big yeah. deal, And she did, and she come home, hand up going, Dad, I'll play footy today. How'd you go? Shit, I was painting It was great. I loved it. Um, anyway, That's so there's awesome. some of the weird... I like it. Yeah, again, perhaps counterintuitive to normal ways of doing it, but I. Nothing wrong with that, my no, friend. No
1: sense, yeah. mm. Now, mindful of your time, I've got one final question I want to ask before we wrap up. Um, we try and shift people from just the inspiration of ideas into action with yep. coffee pods. So with everything that you've shared, if you could encourage people to take an action yeah. after listening to you, what would, what would you like to call them to go and do?
0: Well, look, I'm going to share a concept as well that I've been tossing around and thinking quite deeply for a while now, and this is this concept that naturally humans tend to make things more complex, mm-hmm. bigger, mm-hmm. and always later. So I say to people, you need to, you need to master the skill of making them smaller, less complex, and now. And the driver is now, I always say to people, if you can't start it now, or this afternoon, or like tomorrow, any, any further than that, it's almost like never. Right? It's almost like a kid, can I have this? No, tomorrow. Tomorrow to a two or three year old, it sounds like never to them. It's like, totally. tomorrow is never for me. Later is never for me as a kid. It's like, either now, or it's not happening. Not at all, right? yeah. And funnily enough, we lose that and we learn which are important things to that doesn't add the tetra, tetra. But I want you to draw back, if you can, to that, to realizing that if it's not going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow, it's unlikely that you're ever going to really tackle it. So to do that, make things smaller. You know. So whatever your dreams are, whatever the... You know, me wanting to learn drums, it's literally as simple as, right, how do I, I need to get a drum kit? I need to... Like, it's gonna work. Literally, all I did is I grabbed my phone, I googled drum lessons, the first thing that came up and click on call on my Google Maps, I rang and I said, Can I have a lesson? What is the quickest you can have? And I booked it, I cleared the calendar, and I went to this. And that is what got us started. And at start least the snowball. I got started, right? And it's really funny because once you get started, doing is quite addictive. Mm. It's so it's progress, right? It's amazing, right? Because yeah. you know when you get a little thing, you go,
1: Hey, that's good. I'm getting a bit better. Look at me.
0: So I would say, Don't underestimate that making things smaller, less complex, and as fast as you possibly can, will naturally drive you towards innovating more, making change, embracing change more often than not, etc. So, it doesn't matter what it is. It, literally, anything you can think of in your life, if you can make it smaller, less complex and now, you will be on a good path to be far more innovative and far more adaptable and
1: Awesome, what a great challenge to leave people with. Gus, thank you so much for your time. I love talking to you. We always go in such weird and wonderful directions. We should just do this all the time, shouldn't we? But thank you so much for your generosity and what you've shared. It's been a blast getting to spend time with you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.